What's up, everybody? You're listening to World's Your Oyster, and I'm your host, Paula Sanders, and happy freaking new year. It is 2024, babes. Wow. I cannot believe how fast the last year has gone, but I gotta say, like, it was a big one. A lot happened in 2023, and it is a year that I will forever be grateful for because I learned so much. I had so much change in my life, and I only hope that I can continue to learn and grow and build and do more things in 2024. I am feeling so rejuvenated and so hopeful for a big 2024. I'm manifesting big, and I hope you are too. And I am always here for any of you. If you want to bounce some ideas off of me or you want to learn some manifestation tips, you want to dream big together, hit me up. I'm your girl. And today I am actually speaking to you all from the beautiful Cabo San Lucas because my brother, who is this week's guest on the podcast, is getting married. So first and foremost, I should let you know that my brother is a doctor. He has his PhD in sports science and nutrition, and he is also a professor at Loyola University in Chicago. He does health and performance coaching. He is one of the smartest people that I know, and I admire him so much. And I am very excited for you all to learn from him. He's going to tell you more about what his expertise is because let's face it, I'm his sister and I'm not always listening. (laughs) No, he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to working out, supplementation, how frequently we should be working out, what we should be doing. So I figured this was the best way to start out the new year is to listen to this episode and learn a little bit of something, something from my brother, Dr. Dave. Now, before we get into the episode, I would love to talk about the pearl in my oyster this week. And as I said, I am coming to you live from Cabo San Lucas for my brother's wedding, which is 100% the pearl in my oyster this week. I cannot wait to watch my brother get married to the love of his life tomorrow by the beach with my entire family. I have watched my brother grow up for his entire life and It's always been one of my biggest blessings to be his big sister for so many different reasons. And if I am being honest, even though he is my younger brother, in so many ways, my brother David has been like my older brother. He's always been my protector. He's always been there for me, regardless of what I needed, whether it was, you know, a ride home at 2 a.m. or a trip all the way to New York City, just that I didn't have to take the train. Uh, countless, countless rides back and forth between my mom and my dad's house and our different families for holidays. And, um, ooh, emotional. Sorry, I cried. (laughs) Ooh, I'm not done. Okay. I think I'm done crying now. I am just so happy that he found somebody that loves him so much for all of his unique qualities. And he's such an incredible person. And oh my God, (laughs) he's going to be such a good husband and one day such a good dad, hopefully God willing. And I'm just so happy for him and his soon-to-be wife, Courtney, on the beautiful life that they are already building together. And that is the pearl in my oyster this week. And now that you guys have all heard me cry, I'm going to go enjoy this time with my family on the beach and enjoy this episode between me and my brother. Bye. Dr. Dave, welcome to World's Your Oyster. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so exciting to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule, not just as my brother, but as somebody who I know has dedicated a lot of your adult life to 
everything that you've been doing, exercise science and nutrition. And, you know, I know me and mom always joke that we have no idea what you do with your life, but, you know, I'm actually excited a little bit to learn more about everything that you've been focusing on. So thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule. And I would love for you to let us all know how you got into the field of exercise science and what exactly it took for you to get that PhD of yours that you have. Yeah, well, honestly... I tell my students this a little bit. So I teach at the college level and sometimes I feel like at such a young age, like these kids are expected to know exactly what they want to do with their life because sometimes I feel like I'm still figuring it out a little bit. Don't tell mom that. <laughs> <laughs> but how I got into the field, like a lot of people I know in this industry, it started with an athletic injury. In 11th grade, I tore cartilage in my shoulder. So I got hurt. But it turned out that injury occurred because I had separated my shoulder years before, never did proper physical therapy. So because of that, over time, it led to a bigger injury. Like many kids, I went to college for one thing, finished with something else. So in my first semester as a journalism major, for journalism class, I actually had to do a, like a newspaper article on a topic that interested me. So that topic ended up being on chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So CTE, this was in 2008. So it was kind of like the first time like this would really becoming prevalent in the news. And while I was preparing to write that article, actually, I really enjoyed diving into the academic literature and doing that type of research. So from there, I decided to go pre-med. I'm not a medical doctor, but what I was doing as part of being a biology major to be pre-med, I had friends taking courses in this field called kinesiology. I didn't know what it was. It was like sports. And I was like, I like sports. This is fun. <laughs> so I told my uh, department chair at Rhode Island, I was sneaking into those classes for lack of a better phrase. I was signing up before the kinesiology majors and I got into these classes. It worked out in the end, of course. So my final semester as an undergraduate student, I hadn't declared kinesiology as a major and I wanted to finish with that degree. So I met with the, the department chair, said I want to major in this. And I thought I was going to have to stay a whole other year. And she was like, well, you've been taking a lot of courses, so you need to take two classes and an internship. So I was like, sweet, only a semester. So luckily, <laughs> one of those classes was a research methods class. And that was the first time in that major that I took a class that we did like a little project and we had to write it up like a research article. And it was actually the professor in that for that course that was like, do you ever think about getting your master's and, and doing this at a higher level? And I was like, you can get a master's in this? Like, like what does that entail? <laughs> I, was, I was a little bit of a naive undergrad, let's say, but... Well, we didn't talk much about that kind of stuff at home, if I'm being honest with you. Like, I never knew what went beyond a high school diploma, if I'm being... You know, it's no, true. It was like, it was like go to yeah, they, these were just not conversations that were had in our family about, you know, master's degrees or MBAs or, you know, I had heard of a doctorate, but that was definitely never going to be in our future, in my yeah. future at least. <laughs> and I guess I'll, I'll jump ahead to come back. Like doctors, like, oh, those are people with like the beakers and the and the, the droppers and in and, and labs. And so I kind of did a little bit of that, but not as much as I thought I would. Anyway, took that class and I decided to apply for the master's program. And luckily I got funded to work as a teaching assistant and I got to work with a really great mentor, Dr. Deza Hatfield at Rhode Island. And she is the one who really showed me for the first time the interaction between strength training and endocrinology. So what we do in the gym will affect what occurs to us in our body. So think about uh, sex hormone changes, cortisol, epinephrine. So real quick, if I say epinephrine, I'm also talking about adrenaline. Fun thing about endocrinology, okay. different names for the same thing. Fun. <laughs> so uh, about three weeks into my master's program, I really knew I wanted to go for my PhD. Uh, I, I enjoyed getting into the nitty gritty. I really wanted to learn more. And coming to that late, like I just felt like there was something else I wanted to achieve. So during my master's, learning more about strength and conditioning and how that can be used as a means to either reduce injury risk or to help increase the rate of return to your activity after an injury, I started to question like, all right, I grew up around dance. I was always yes, in a dance studio. There was not a dumbbell. Maybe there was a resistance band. I don't know. 
We had the resistance band, but we used them for stretching. It wasn't yeah. for, for working out. And then we had the split. You remember the, the split, split machine? machine? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's still in the closet <laughs> somewhere. I actually, I think next time I'm home, I need to take a picture of it so I can use it in my classes. But I started to ask, like, yeah. like how come, how come, like, there's all this, these advances that, that we've learned about over the last 30, 40 years of the benefits of strength training. And, like, I knew growing up playing hockey or lacrosse, like, there was, and I also ran cross country, there was benefits to our sport performance if we were able to get stronger in some regard. So through my master's, I dove into a little bit of the literature and, and really saw that there was not great strength and conditioning research in the dance field. So I was like, what better way to marry an interest with something I was just always around? Mm-hmm. So over that first year, I started to refine my question a little bit. Uh, I guess, spoiler alert, I didn't get to research that in my master's because uh, I wanted to finish in two, two years. But my first, after my first year at Rhode Island, I went to my first national conference and this guy gave a talk on how they use blood-based biomarkers or looking at hormones and other indicators of stress in female soccer players and how related to their training load over, over the season. So that guy ended up being Dr. Sean Art, who I met briefly after that talk. I applied to work in his lab and by the grace of God, he accepted me. <laughs> After Rhode Island, I went to Rutgers to then continue my education. It was there where I got to take what we were doing with different sports at Rutgers. So whether it was men's and women's soccer, field hockey, women's lacrosse, we worked with swimming, diving. So I took those principles that we were using and started to apply them to dance. And that culminated with a great project of doing a five-month biomarker monitoring program with young dancers at American Ballet Theater. He let me study hormones in teenagers. Uh, we were all young ones. Yeah, I finished the study 2019. So luckily we get it all wrapped up before uh, COVID hit. I had a nice, nice COVID defense and we passed that and started to apply for jobs. And of course, uh, one of those opportunities was at Loyola University of Chicago, where I got that job and accepted it to continue teaching, well, to start teaching at the undergraduate and graduate level. Hold on. I have to stop you quickly, though. You forgot to mention that in this time, you got your PhD. You graduated with your PhD. <laughs> yes, I graduated. Yeah, I graduated my PhD. <laughs> so I'm not good at talking with- about myself. <laughs> That's okay, honey. I'm going to teach you. You're going to get like the rest of us in this family. You're going to talk, talk, talk like the rest of us. So yeah, I teach at the graduate and undergraduate level. Exercise phys, testing prescriptions, sports nutrition, sports science, seeing how our training nutrition affects human performance. Uh, I continue to do some research with dancers here. Um, I'm actually, I'm part of a collaboration between different researchers at different universities. Uh, we call ourselves uh, the, the Tiara Group. It's the Intercollegiate Artistic Athlete Research Assessment. I collaborate with researchers from University of Idaho and Ohio State University, and we're doing this survey to help get a better understanding of what the college dancers like and what their training demands are. Awesome. And now David doesn't just know about dancers and how to work out for dancers. David really knows how to work out for everybody, which is exactly why we have him here on this show today. Because after speaking to a ton of my friends and family and everybody that's been listening to this show, it seems that everybody really wants to stop wasting time. I don't know if you've heard about this, David, but everyone's talking about their soft girl summer and how we're done taking boot camp classes and we're going to start listening to our body. So I really wanted to talk to you about about mm-hmm. strength training because we know that this is an integral part of you know our program at all stages and especially as we get older weight training from what i understand becomes even more important so i would love to learn from you about what are the things that we should be focusing on when we're in the gym and how can we maximize our time while we're in the gym yeah so let's try to take this piece by piece here so a couple of things that i always uh, start with in a training program is how are we going to move through a session? Because if you want to move efficiently through a session, you want to maximize the muscle that's being activated while minimizing the effect of fatigue throughout the session. So I like to go from large multi-joint muscle groups or movements to small single joint. So think of like uh, your squat, your deadlift, your bench press, and however you are doing that, whether it be with a barbell, dumbbell, kettlebell. You're moving from those large muscle groups. Then from there, 
you have that as a first exercise, and then maybe you pair it with something you might call as a, a corrective exercise or a prehab movement. So you can work through your, your session in pairs. So something I like to do, so let's say we're doing that dumbbell goblet squat. That's mm-hmm. going to be your first movement. So it's a large muscle group movement. It's an emphasis on strength during that phase. Recommendations for strength workout, three to five sets working somewhere with a load that you do six to eight reps, but then you have to recover anywhere from three to five minutes. Now you might have 40 minutes for a workout. We've tried this before. Let's wait for three minutes. (laughs) I couldn't do it. No, no, no. (laughs) It's, It's textbook. It's not efficient. There's the textbook way to to train, and then we need to go to the real-world application. And this is where having that paired exercise, all right, we just worked our legs. So maybe if we need to address something that's not functioning well in our upper body, we can do some sort of shoulder mobility or small muscle group shoulder strengthening. Or we could even think about a lower body mobility type movement where you're addressing something that might be limiting your performance or might be something that you want to address to help enhance the way you move. So what you're saying is basically we need to focus on the large muscle groups and then on the downtime, focus on the smaller muscle groups. Yeah. Uh, and even if it's not small muscle group, just think about moving your body through as much of a range of motion as possible. Okay. And how long do you typically recommend for somebody to work out? And what would be the mix between the strength training and the cardio? What is that, you know, kind of secret sauce? Yeah. So our best recommendations would try to be to separate those sessions. So if you have, let's say you have five days a week to work out. Week one, maybe do three days per week of your your strength training session or or your, your weight room. Two days per week, emphasize cardio. The following week, reverse it. Three days of aerobic-based movements, or run, jog, stairmaster, get into a little bit more specifics later, and flip that with two days of weight training. And this could be something that can go perpetually. Yeah. Okay. That's actually a great recommendation. That's it's. I do follow that a little bit. And do you recommend mm-hmm. five days per week? Is that what you say is recommended, or can you ramp it up six days? I know that you are a huge you know, you love rest and you really mm-hmm. think that rest is important. Well, not think, you know that rest is important. Rest is, so yeah. what is the recommended amount of times we should be hitting the gym? So this is where the science meets the art a little bit, where there's going to be times where you're physically capable of doing six days per week. But now there's also going to be times during the year where your work, your life is going to get a little bit busier. Maybe you're a little bit more stressed because of other demands. And because of that stress, your recovery is a little bit impaired. So maybe six days, five to six days per week is not suitable at that time. So uh, my example I like to teach through this is an accountant. Typically, tax season, February through April, is their busy time of the year. Should we be taking that February through April period for that accountant and doing six days per week? No, that's going to be a period of time where we'll want to reduce their workload if they can get three times per week during that and you just go, you alternate two weight room sessions, one cardio and reverse at the following week, that's going to be great for that person because it's still what they can do is that when they're less stressed, they have more time to train. They can build their capacities during that less life stress period. And then when life stress becomes greater, you reduce the training load, but you can maintain the previous gains on less training volume. So this is where I think working with a coach is really useful in which they're able to, a coach, a good coach should be able to ask these questions, try to get a better idea of what else is going on in your life. And from a training standpoint, what you can handle to just make sure not just that you go to your sessions, but don't overtrain, don't burn out because when that could happen, that's where you increase your risk of injury. And when you get hurt, you can't train. 
can't train. Or I mean, I feel like in the times of my life when I was really killing myself in the gym, I felt that I just wasn't seeing any results. It's not that I was getting fat or Mm -hmm. I was losing muscle. There was just nothing happening, which was kind of maddening for me because I was doing these ridiculous boot camp classes. I was spending, you know, hour plus in the gym and there's nothing Mm -hmm. more upsetting when you're doing that and you're really wanting to be cut or ripped or you know, and it's been since I've really slowed down and stopped putting the stress and pressure on myself mm-hmm. to be the epitome of, I don't know what I was trying to be and slow down and start doing some more low impact exercises six days a week, five days a week is okay too. And just like relax and take the time to really repair. And what I've actually been focusing on now that I got my aura ring, which I know you don't have the aura ring, but you have something else, right? I am a polar watch and heart rate monitor user. Yeah. But do you, you wear it for sleep? Do you track your sleep? I do. And so whether it's a Garmin or a ring, a whoop band, the data obtained from these commercial devices is okay. The thing I found most useful with, with these devices and that I use as my best guide is lowest heart rate achieved overnight. Yeah, uh, I same. found that to be I found that to be the most consistent indicator of how refreshed I actually feel in the morning. A hundred percent, me too. Regardless of what the HRV or whatever sleep score metric says, I get my heart rate. If, well, no, you're sleeping, so you can't <laughs> cognitively get your heart rate anywhere. If my heart rate's forty or under, if that's where that nadir is, that's the fancy way to say the lowest point. If I get forty or under, I wake up feeling great, whether I sleep six hours or seven and a half. So just don't hold yourself too strong to any direct metric from these commercial devices. They're okay. They're getting better, but it's not a ride or die on a, your sleep score was bad. So you can't work out today. Yeah. But I do notice when my sleep score is bad I wake up and it's bad and my and it's saying that my cuz basically that's all related to your heart rate, right? So when it says that my heart rate didn't lower last night or it didn't lower mm-hmm. enough, I will and it says to relax, to just go mm-hmm. easy and I normally if I would wake up feeling crappy, I would still push myself to go to the gym, but now that I'm wearing this and being more conscious of the way that my body is feeling and I say, you know what? Maybe I won't go to the gym today and most of the times I don't or instead of doing, you know, a workout, I will just walk on an incline or, you know, do a hiking class instead, which is a lot less cardio intensive than the things I've been doing and it's really helped me a lot with my training. Yeah, so before we got into the sleep stuff, you called it soft girl summer before, so I've never heard <laughs> of it. <yet. laughs> but some of the concepts Looking of that up on TikTok. <laughs> Not on TikTok, (laughs) barely Instagram, but I guess I can disclose I worked at Orange Theory for a little bit. So I was part of the uh, high intensity interval class. There's pros and cons to those types of workouts. Turns out that if you do those type of workouts a couple times per week, you're able to see the results that are similar to someone who's doing something lower intensity, longer duration, multiple more times per week. So what we know that's starting to occur with doing hit classes too often is that because of the the high demands of that class, of course, there's going to be a greater cortisol secretion. But what's also occurring is that the oxidative stress that's achieved during those classes is high. So let's say you do it Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday. From Monday to Wednesday, your body's not recovering from that that oxidative damage. Now, because your body's not buffering that oxidative response, it's limiting the ability of of your body to adapt that previous training load. So that's kind of where you felt where you you were doing all these really hard training sessions and you're not improving. Your your run's not getting faster. Your lift's not getting stronger. Movements aren't getting more powerful. And that's because your body's not, from an oxidative stress standpoint, it's not recovering from previous workloads. So get in that recovery. That is going to be the, yeah. the big takeaway. Something we like to say is, is work hard, recover harder. Work hard, recover harder. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah. So when I work with clients, whether they're athletes at Loyola or other people I work with uh, through my own business, one of the things that we try to achieve is right after our training session or a competition event, whatever their, their field may be, is to eat as soon as possible. 
If food's not available right away, have some sort of supplement, whether it's a, a protein carbohydrate shake, bar, or whatever can be tolerated. So this you can get a little bit more into what soon, but have that food stuff as soon as possible after, because what that's going to do is shift your body from the catabolic state of exercise or, or competing. We want to be catabolic. We want that. We want cortisol to be high when we're training, when we're competing, because cortisol, although it's a stress hormone, it is a master metabolizer. It gets things broken down, moved to the parts of the body that need to generate energy. So we want cortisol high when we work out, but as soon as that session's over, in a perfect world, it goes from 100 to zero real quick. Food helps that process. Got it. So if you continue to fast after your workout, you're just going to keep producing cortisol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. because Which is not good. Which is not good. Now, let's say you're an endurance athlete. This is where we get a little bit more art now. There's going to be times where maybe you want to train in a low glycogen state, so low carbohydrate availability. So you might train twice a day. And this is only for, I really only do this with endurance athletes. You'd have a training session, not eat carbohydrates. So you could have some fat, maybe some protein, and then you'd have a second training session. So in that particular instance, you're going to be manipulating your food intake in order to specifically upregulate your fat metabolism in a next workout. Now that session, your intensity is going to be lower. So there's a little bit of the art and science and, and how, what might be good for one person, our endurance athlete might not be good for our other athlete, whether basketball player, soccer player, dancer, uh, you. Yeah. (laughs) I was just going to say, what about for, what about just for your, you know, regular person who wants to keep and maintain a healthy lifestyle? What should they be doing immediately following their workouts? And let's, I'm going to make this a twofold question. So Mm. on my cardio day, what should I be eating after I work out and when, and on my strength training day, what should I be eating and when? So... I would follow up with, uh, let's go over a three-month period. What's your goal for that period? My goal for the period is to just, I would say, you know, it's always just to tone up a little bit more Mm -hmm. and to keep the fat away and to stay looking young and fresh. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So this is where keep it simple, stupid. We're going to do the same approach for whether it's cardio or strength training. We're going to keep the approach consistent. Because Mm -hmm. as long as it's consistent you're most likely to adhere to it. So immediately after that training session, we're going to get in your protein. If you want, you can add a little bit of carbohydrate to it to start to upregulate that. I'm sorry for using nerdy words here to start to recover from a muscle glycogen standpoint. Muscle glycogen is what's used to make your energy at a fast rate during training. The sooner we can get, I'll call this your recovery response from your muscle tissue. And from your energy availability standpoint, the sooner we can get that going at a faster rate, the more you can recover, the harder you can train in your next session or to maintain the intensity that you're training within your next session. So getting at least 20 grams of protein. Within that 20 grams of protein, we want to look for three grams of the amino acid leucine. Okay. So leucine is the amino acid that we know that triggers the upregulation of this thing called mTOR. mTOR is what causes muscle protein synthesis or the increased rate of muscle protein synthesis. The faster that goes, the faster that muscle tissue can start recovering because you just worked hard. It's going to be a little damage. So what has that in there? If I'm, you could tell me a supplement or a, you know, a shake, but what foods can I eat? Can I eat an egg? Does an egg have that? An egg will have that. I believe you have to have three large eggs to consume uh, that three grams of leucine. It might be four. So don't put me on that directly. We'll look it up and put it in the show notes. <laughs> yes. About 20 grams of chicken. So it's looking at like that 20 gram of protein intake, but whether it be a chicken breast, red meat, fish, those will all be sources of, of food that will get you to that leucine threshold. Now, our vegetable sources will have the protein available. However, we don't typically consider vegetable protein sources high quality sources. So from a definition standpoint, a high quality protein is gonna be a source that contains all of the essential amino acids, which 
are the proteins, the amino acids your body can't make. So you have to consume them. So vegetable sources of proteins are an incomplete essential amino acid profile. So you have to start mixing and matching your vegetable sources. So it's possible. It's just more difficult to achieve those levels. However, not to contradict myself totally, our vegetable protein sources are becoming much better at closing the gap between an animal-based protein supplement quality and that plant-based. What they are doing is uh, addressing that incomplete essential amino acid profile, adding more of those individual or those missing individual amino acids. And what we're seeing is that the results are fairly similar. What are some of your favorite protein supplements to use? So I typically don't stray far from chocolate uh, whey protein isolates. Everyone's got their own flavor preferences. I'm not going to sit here and say chocolate is the best. No, I just prefer chocolate. Currently, I'm using GNC's whey protein isolate. I've enjoyed Diamond Ties in the past. There's so many different brands out there. Regardless of which one you use, there's a couple things you should always look for here. And that's going to be the the third-party testing indicators on these protein sources. If you're unaware, the FDA doesn't directly regulate our dietary supplements. So there's not a really strict sense of control over what these supplements might or might not contain. So there's an industry of third-party testing programs that will batch test these supplements to make sure that they either contain what they say they contain, or more importantly, don't contain things that they shouldn't contain. And this becomes really important, especially if you compete in sanctioned events that you're getting drug tested in. But also as a general consumer, if you're taking a protein supplement, you don't want steroids in your protein because uh, <laughs> that can cause interactive, well, interactive effects with maybe medications you might be on and could lead to things that are undesirable. So some of these third-party testing, you'll see these stickers on them. Informed Choice and NSF are going to be two of your primary ones. And there's a couple other ones too. The last one is the Good Manufacturing Practice, so GMP certification. And as the name implies, it ensures that the production of that supplement is using techniques that are up to code from the FDA. So take a look for that third-party testing indicators. It should be right on the front or the back by the nutrition panel of whatever supplement you're buying. And that should just give you a little bit more confidence in that what you're getting is what you're paying for. Whey protein isolates are great. I prefer those because they're a little bit more processed. So especially those that might have a lactose sensitivity. So if you eat dairy and yeah. you feel a little not great about it, but it doesn't happen all the time. Whey protein isolate tends to reduce the effect of lactose from that dairy source. So it's better tolerated by more people. It's also absorbed a little bit faster. So if you're looking for that quick spike in protein absorption, uh, right after that workout, whey protein isolate is great. Then there's something, and I've been seeing this pop up on Instagram a lot recently too, is the, are these clear protein powders? Typically those are whey protein hydrolysates in which it's another step of whey protein processing. So it's the most processed form of whey protein. It is rapidly absorbed uh, a little bit faster than the whey protein isolate, but not that much faster. However, it is the most expensive form of whey protein because it's the most processed. Something you might be most familiar with is a regular whey protein concentrate. If you can tolerate it, it works great. It's absorbed well. However, if you have a dairy sensitivity, at that level, that's where you'll feel it. Any recommendations on a non-dairy, like a plant-based proteins or? So I've started to dive into these a little bit more now. Personally, I've, I haven't had one. I haven't bought one. I've definitely sampled them, at, whether it be at a conference, I'm just trying them out and their taste is getting good. I've been looking into some of the pea proteins that are out there now. And what's interesting about them is that they're addressing that essential amino acid profile problem, but they, they're also a great source of iron. So if you look at your diet, and uh, I recommend every once in a while, maybe a day or two, to try to track your diet and see what you typically consume to see if there's any significantly missing micronutrients. 
Uh, is there an app that we can use to like to track that that you recommend? Because yeah, if I just wrote I, down what I looked, what I ate <laughs> in a, you know two days, I'd say okay, yeah. cool. There's no way for me to know what's actually in there. Yeah, I've been using Chronometer. It's like my fitness pal. But what I do with the clients I work with is I'll use a, a food frequency questionnaire from the National Institute of Health. I send them a link, and what I really like about that model and and that resource is that it can actually account for serving size for whatever foods you regularly eat. So there's no perfect way to track nutrition. Uh, just want to, I need, I need to say that now. And it should not be done for extended periods of time. I don't recommend that. But what doing a food frequency questionnaire or doing just a little bit of tracking does, it helps uh, calibrate what you're eating with what you think you're eating. So I think having that, that oh, I recognize that or, or that seems right. I think having that, that self-reflection opportunity is really important. That NIH resource, what's really great about it is that once you put the foods in that you typically eat, the person who administered it to you will get a full report on not just your macronutrients, so that's carbs, fats, proteins, but what types of carbs, fats, proteins, but it'll get the whole list of micronutrients, so vitamins, Items A, B, D, C, uh, E, iron, magnesium, your, your uh, minerals. You get a full report of that as well. And I like to use them to make sure that there's no glaring holes in someone's uh, food intake. Yeah, and it's important. Actually, I should start doing that. I, can I do that? Can I do that with you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, can send, I can send you the food frequency questionnaire. Yeah, that would be that would be awesome. I think that's great. If you could run us through just like what a perfect day looks like in terms of someone's diet, because you are precision nutrition certified. So I would love to understand, you know, what does a really killer day look like, you know, for you or for someone who is doing it <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and you can also include supplements in that as well. So the vitamins that you should be taking, you know, if there's any type of powders, potions, athletic greens, you know, like what are the things that we should be ingesting? I start my day. I, I'm usually just a fruit person in the morning. I, I don't like training in the morning. I'm, I'm not that trainer who's like, you have to wake up by 4.30 a.m. and get that, beat the crowd at 5 a.m. I'm, I'm not that person. If that's you, that's fine. It does not fit my sleep-wake cycle. I don't think you should alter your sleep-wake cycle much. I'm also very fortunate where I'm able to leave my job and go train for an hour. And it's kind of part of the job. So finding that balance of, of what works best for you. So in the morning, I'll wake up. I'll usually eat a piece of fruit, whether it's an apple and banana. I'll take uh, a krill oil supplement. So krill oil is fish oil, but it's a little less fishier. So I don't, I don't know if you, you take fish oils. Uh, when you take, you get the fishy burps a little bit after that. Uh, yeah. I tend not, I tend not to get that with the krill oil. So, uh, what that's helping to do is to increase your omega three fatty acids that you consume. So there's a host of benefits from heart health to what we're even seeing with some muscle recovery stuff with the omega threes. And then after I take my omega three fatty acid, I'll actually I'll take a vitamin D supplement. Uh, I tend to dial that back a little bit more in the summer as you spend more time outside and you get your vitamin D that way. And I'll up it in the winter when it's dark by four and you're not outside because it's cold. If you do take vitamin D, make sure you are consuming it with some fat in your diet. Vitamin D is a fat absorbable vitamin, which means if there's no fat in your gut, you're not going to optimally absorb it. So that's where my morning starts. So no multi or anything in the morning. You just take Not the yet. supplements throughout the day is what you recommend. Mm -hmm. Okay. Take us on the journey. Yeah. So since I'm on supplements, I'll do, I'll do my supplements. After my training session, whether it's at 11 or 1, 1 o'clock, I'll take my protein after that. I'll sometimes mix my creatine in with my protein, which I usually do that because- Should women be taking creatine? Yes. Let's put a pin in that. One hundred. Okay. Everyone should be taking creatine. Also, <laughs> uh, I'll take my creatine with my protein after my workout, uh, mainly because there's no, there's really no perfect time to take creatine. There's no bad time. There's no good time. Just, just take it regularly, and I'll always remember to take it with my protein. I'll get home from work, and I'm an Athletic Greens user, so I'll take my Athletic Greens sometime before dinner. The reason why I don't take it in the morning, Athletic Greens is very high in potassium. So if you're someone like me and you do prepare a lot of your own meals you're not consuming a lot of salt. 
So what I found out by mistake is that I took it about 45 minutes before I started to teach a class and 30 minutes in the class, I had to run and pee. <laughs> so potassium, uh, just to balance out uh, sodium and water in your body, you take too much potassium uh, or you take something with a lot of potassium in it, even eating a banana uh, and just having water with it, it'll draw some sodium out of the cell. Water follows sodium. Now, because sodium is high in your blood, your kidney sends that, pulls the sodium out of your blood, water follows the sodium. So, <laughs> so you set yourself up to draw sodium and water out and fill your bladder. So uh, wow. I had to shift to consume my athletic greens at night. On a regular basis, that is uh, what I typically take. I get my essential amino acids from there too, and I'll cycle back on that. From the Naked Supplement Company, they have this mushroom recovery. I take a scoop of that and I, I take it with my athletic greens as well. Especially over the summer, I've been training for the triathlon. So I've been doing uh, two training sessions a day on days that I have two hard sessions for a little extra recovery. I'll take that mushroom supplement with the athletic What kind of mushrooms are in there? Do you remember? There's reishi, maitake. There's two more. There might be trochitale. No, not psilocybin. Uh, That's a different conversation. (laughs) That's interesting. But I've been been adding that in recently. And and I felt that it has helped a little bit more with the muscle recovery. But on the flip side, I've also felt like it's recovered me too much. It made me a little too chill that on the next day that I feel like I can't get myself as activated for a workout. Or it takes me a little bit longer to get activated. So I'm finding that balancing act a little bit all these things that these antioxidants or these things that are, are stress relievers, if we overdo it, it, it might suppress that, that stress response or that oxidative response that we want. Yeah. Cause I know I mentioned it earlier, especially with the cortisol during the workout, we want to be careful with antioxidants after our workout, because as we train, we have that oxidative response. Now that oxidative response is also what drives adaptation. So we think about, we get that oxidative response and then we take antioxidants and blunt it. If we stop that response, we limit the adaptations that a training session too. So uh, we talked about that before in the context of doing the high intensity interval training too frequently. So because we were over oxidating, we were limiting adaptation, but also we weren't allowed enough oxidative stress we're not adapting. So this is where that, there's that little bit of a balancing act. So once you take your antioxidants or things with antioxidants in it, wait an hour after your workout. So that's why I really like just a protein shape in that post-workout period. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So there was a lot of science there. I want to go back to the creatine thing, Mm -hmm. but if you can just make it as simple as possible, you wake up, you're having a banana, you take your fish oil, you go do your workout, you take your protein with a creatine, yep. nothing else. You're not eating anything, no solid foods throughout any of this? So I usually get hungry for like a breakfast type meal around 10. So I'll eat then. And that might vary a little bit based on what time my class starts that day. But I'll, I like to get that in 30 minutes before class. And that would be like a lean protein. An egg and a carb on, on quick days. I'm even looking to improve my consumption of vegetables at the breakfast period. I'll be the first person to tell you I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. At lunch, uh, I'll typically meal prep some sort of ground meat, whether it be turkey, chicken, beef. I'll have that with a rice and and a vegetable that's mixed in, just the the mixed canned or bagged vegetables. But yeah, we're all looking for that, that quick thing for lunch. I'll have another piece of fruit with that and just water. I shall say I drink about two cups of coffee in the morning and I try to limit my caffeine after 12 p.m. Dinner. Well, athletic greens first, right? Athletic greens, yes. mushrooms, and then dinner. And then dinner. And that'll be your protein, your carb, your vegetable on the plate, and then a salad on the side. So it's one of the things I like to talk, I call it base nutrition. Big, awesome salad, eat daily. So a couple of rules with the salad. Let's try not to use creamy dressings. Because mm-hmm. uh, we're trying with that salad, we're getting our fiber, we're getting some of those those minerals that might be missing throughout the day, and that should be a main thought with the salad. 
a lot of people then want to say, oh, what kind of cheese, nuts, vegetables. Find some things that you like, but don't let not having those available to you. Make you not have the salad. Make you not have salad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dressing, I, I something we've been doing recently is some olive oil and a squirt of lemon juice. I call it a quickerette, a quick vinaigrette. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really corny, but um, it tastes really good. Throw some blueberries on it if you have them. Trying to keep, again, that, that keep it simple, stupid at times. And big, awesome salad, eat daily. You can, if you need to start there and then build out, it's a great way to make sure you are also consuming enough of your vegetables throughout the day. That's awesome. And then very quick, just tell me about mm-hmm. the creatine because I am interested in that. Two to three grams per day, every day. Why? Because what that's going to do is it's going to, over time, maximize your creatine stores. So creatine is, of course, great for our muscles. It is part of the immediate energy system. Uh, So creatine acts as a phosphate receptor. So when we make energy, we take this molecule called ATP. It's an adenosine and three phosphates. So when one phosphate cleaves off of it, the energy generated from that is what's causing your muscles to contract. Creatine accepts that on the other side of the equation keeps in the muscle though. If there's less creatine, more of that phosphate, it could leak out, become other things out of the muscle cell. If we can maximize creatine, keep the phosphate in the muscle cell, this is an immediately reversible reaction. That creatine and the phosphate will split off each other, then you have more ATP again. More ATP, more muscle contraction. Okay, so what's the keep it simple, stupid reason for taking creatine? Take the science out and just let me know why I need to take it. It'll allow you to do more work. There we go. Thank you. So, so now we're at the beginning of this bursting phase of the role of creatine in brain health, though. And what we're seeing is that with greater creatine stores in your brain, there's an improvement in the rate of recovery from traumatic brain injuries, so concussions, things of that nature. And there's a couple studies showing really a positive correlations between brain creatine stores and the reduction in depression risk. So we're at the beginning of the research in this area. It's really exciting. And the initial results are positive and in support of creatine for brain health. So maybe over the next five, 10 years, we'll have a little bit clearer picture of this, but it's able to occur mechanistically. Creatine crosses the blood-brain barrier. So again, the brain is part of that immediate energy system Amazing. All right. Well, before I let you go, I want to know, are there any myths or things that you would like to debunk for the people so that they know what they should be doing? Yeah. Two things. Don't fear heavy weights. They will not make you Arnold Schwarzenegger. It takes a lot of eating to put on that muscle mass. So lift heavy, lift heavy. It's not just good for your muscles. It's good for your bones as well. And now if mobility is a concern of yours, it should be a concern for everyone. Lifting heavy, getting strong muscles is not going to limit your mobility. What limits your mobility is not stretching mobility, not stretching. (laughs) Mobility is one of those things. If you don't use it, you lose it. So motion is lotion. (laughs) Motion is lotion. I like that. Motion is lotion. (laughs) Anything else in terms of food? Prepare as many of your meals as possible. Limit the amount of processed foods you consume. For the most part, your intuition is pretty good. If you think it's not great for you, it might not be great. But that also doesn't mean on occasion don't have it. Yeah. Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. And now I would also love to talk to you about your project that you've been working on with Legacy performance dynamics. Can you tell me a little bit more about this business that you have and how we can get in touch with you should this be something that we're looking for? Yeah. So Legacy Performance Dynamics is a business I started with my fiance, soon to be wife. And we're trying to bring the benefits of strength and conditioning and sports nutrition to as many people as possible. Our focus is on the dancer to try to help meet them where they are. You know, their population Traditionally, don't do strength training, haven't kept up with modern sports and nutrition practices. So having this ability now, uh, especially leveraging some of the things we've learned how to use through COVID, whether it be Zoom meetings, app-based fitness stuff, leveraging these technologies to 
bring these advances in the exercise sciences to this population at an affordable rate. We have on-demand programs in which you follow along to things that we've already set. We have uh, virtual training sessions available in which we'll work with you to help customize a training program that's best for you. So that could either be done all through the app, or we can do a mixture of app and through Zoom, or we can do completely one-on-one virtually. Uh, We also have the option if you are in the Chicago area, our gym is portable, so we can come to you and do a one-on-one training session. The last easy-to-access thing that we have, you can work with me in a sports nutrition sense. We'll meet initially, set some goals. I'll help coach you through achieving some smaller parts of the process to help you achieve those goals. So through, throughout all of our trainings, whether it's uh, strength and conditioning or even sports nutrition, as cliche as it sounds, one of the things we focus on is the process. We like to celebrate your consistency with achieving the process. And then once you achieve your goal, we have a conversation and we see what we can do to either enhance that goal or just to help you maintain that goal. Awesome. So if you need to find David on the internet, you can find him on Instagram at doctor, that's D-R dot D Sanders. And if you want to find him for Legacy Performance Dynamics, you can find him at... Legacy Performance Dynamics. Well, David, thank you so much. I'm so proud of you for everything that you've done. I know that you worked so hard. You're probably one of the youngest professors. It's amazing. He's not even 35 years old. He's been a professor for, I don't know, a couple of years Going now. Going on four years. Going on four years. Yeah. So it's pretty incredible what you've been able to achieve in your life. And I know just how important all of this is to you. So thank you so much for imparting your wisdom and your knowledge with our community. I'm sure there will be many follow-ups that we can do here because we really only touched the surface here today. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of other things that we would love to talk with you about. You know, We can also dive deep on dance. We can dive deeper into all of the physics and things and, and reasons why we, we work out and when we should work out and more nutrition mm-hmm. stuff. So, um, you know, if you're interested in learning more, just let me know and we can definitely plan something else. But in the meantime, David, thank you so much and continue to keep doing and pouring yourself into everything that you're doing. Congratulations on the success of Legacy Performance Dynamics as well. And I'm wishing you the best and I hope to, I get to see you soon. This was fun. Yeah, this was <laughs> fun. Thank you. This, I'm kind of blessed. Everybody, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to World's Your Oyster. I'm so excited that you're here and I cannot wait to continue growing on this journey with you. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you'll subscribe here, wherever it is that you might be listening. And why don't you go ahead and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube at World's Your Oyster Podcast. We also have an awesome newsletter, so I hope that you'll visit us there at www.worldyouroysterpodcast and hit subscribe as soon as you get to our website. Don't forget, we'll see you next Friday. Bye!